Mark 8, 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd, before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanatha. The word of the God. Before I go into our message this time, let me prepare us with a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you for um, your word that gives us instruction, but also gives us a plan. It's an encouragement and a hope for those of us who, who desperately need it. So as I pray each time, I pray that you would help us to hear, help us to see, help us to know, but most importantly, to feel what you want us to feel. So I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of us come from a culture that if you're like my culture, three words are very difficult to say. Actually, three words that maybe we hardly ever hear said in our families. And the words are, I love you. Those words in, in, in many Asian families is one that is sparsely heard and sometimes very difficult for us to even say to one another. On the flip side, some of us come from a culture where the words I love you come out very easily, maybe sometimes too easily, that they've kind of also become just habit and really have no real meaning. But in my context, why I bring it up now is that a lot of times when we say those words, if there are no actions that actually gives legitimacy to those words, those words can become very hollow. And, and for many of us, being able to say those words, being such a challenge, is not a healthy thing. Because we all know, as followers of Jesus Christ, that God commands us to love others. And so in that process of loving others, we should be able to say to others that we love them. But in, in that context, as I said, there are times where loving others can be a challenge, especially when others are different from ourselves. Maybe they're different socioeconomically, educationally, racially, faith-wise. Just to stir up things. I have a picture here of something that we can often encounter on the streets, especially in an urban setting like San Francisco or Oakland. And when you see, see a picture like that, or you see someone like that on the streets, what is your initial reaction? What are the feelings that come up when you are approached or solicited by a person such as the one in the photo? Well, we here in America, we are people that, that live in a society that, that's based on individuals, right? 
it's all about me. A lot of us have an attitude that, you know, I work hard for the money that I have. Why should I give it away? And at times, we could be um, just so busy with our own lives. We're so stressed out with our own burdens that we are more focused on ourselves and we have just no margin to be able to, to care or think about someone else. And, and there are also things that, that, that we have fears or anxieties over. And, and these are barriers that prevent us from even wanting to care for others. But this is not an excuse for us to avoid that command that God gives to us to help others. And, and I'll tell you a little secret, that when we help others, we have an opportunity to experience something that was meant for us. That in the process of helping others, there is a gift, a blessing. And then when we don't help others, we will lose that opportunity to receive a blessing and a gift that was meant for you. So where do we begin? So how do we start? Following Jesus' example, we're going to look at this uh, feeding of the 4,000, this miracle in, in Mark 8. And the scripture was read to you this morning. And the first thing that we get from that passage is that Jesus noticed the people around him. During those days, Scripture says, a large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, this is the third day of people gathering around Jesus, because Jesus is is going around um, the area, and he's preaching and teaching, and people are just gathering in, in the thousands. And this is the third day, and Jesus is still teaching. But while he's teaching, he's actually noticing that people haven't really had a chance to eat. So they must be hungry. Here, Jesus is behaving like what I would call a good host at a party should be doing, right? When you're a host at a, at a party, you are attentive to your guests. You look in the room, and you see if they're, they're comfortable, if the if there's enough food and drink for them, if there's any particular needs, as a host, you are attentive to that and would act immediately. So here, Jesus, teaching, is being a good host also. He's noticing that people must be hungry. This past week, um, one of my aunts had, had passed away recently, and she had a memorial service. And uh, during the service, stories are shared about her, and, and one memory popped up when they were saying that she was a really good cook. And, and it, it brought this memory when I was uh, a few years back. She, at her age, she passed away at almost 98 years old. So she was pretty elderly. But in her latter days, she became mostly like a shut-in. So she was living uh, at home and, and uh, barely got out of the house. So occasionally, I would go and visit her just to, to say hello and and be uh, an outside person, a family member, who at least shows some love to her and just to give her some companionship and friendship on, the, on those visits. And so on one visit, I went, and uh, I was thinking I was doing 
the dutiful filial kind of uh, nephew to go, go visit. But when I was there, she, as all good Asian mothers and, and women, they asked, have you eaten yet? And, and, and even at that age where I thought I was doing something for her, she was actually thinking about me. And, and she uh, served me, and I said, no, I actually I hadn't. She served me a very simple meal. But it was actually, I don't know if a lot of you know, in Cantonese they call it hajimi, right? It's uh, shrimp roe noodles. It actually has the little black specks, which are shrimp eggs in the noodles. It's very popular in Hong Kong and in Canton, China. And, and it's actually one of my favorite meals. I mean, it's very simple. But she said, I have some, and I will make it for you. So unknowingly, she blessed me by serving me a meal. And as being a good host, she was thinking more of me than her own self, who at this age was in a wheelchair, or her memory was kind of going, and, and it was fragile health-wise. But here, similarly, Jesus is being a good host. And it's a sign for us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be good hosts to others, meaning that we will always notice them as opposed to ignoring them. Our natural tendency is to shut out those kind of things in our lives. When we encounter people with need in our cultures, I think we tend to shut down to protect ourselves. Uh, when we see people like those that I, I showed on that, that, that picture earlier, oftentimes we will avoid eye contact. We will even go to the inconvenience of going through a, a side exit to avoid those that may be sit, sitting there in the street waiting for us. Relationships with family or friends who are in need can also cause that kind of reaction from ourselves, that they become estranged, that we don't call them up as much, or we don't uh, ask them out anymore, or we kind of cringe when we get a phone call or a text message from, from a family member who, who's in financial need or, 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 or whatever need because we just don't want to be bothered by it anymore. And when we get overcome by these needs, we sometimes react in a way that we try to give a quick, quick solution, right? a band-aid solution to the, to the issue, and it doesn't really solve the problem, but it's just one way to, to make ourselves feel good, just that we, oh, we did something. But according to the scriptures, we are commanded to love others for Jesus. So it, in that commandment, then we cannot be blind to those issues around us. When there are people in need, we can't turn our heads. We can't ignore it. We can't walk away or walk around. But we are to fully engage and to recognize and notice that there are issues, there are needs with others among us. So the next thing from the scripture, after we see from Jesus that he is like a host and he notices people and notices their needs the next thing he does is he listens and how do i get this from the scripture well it says here because in, in verse three it says because some of them have come a long distance jesus says that now how do you think he he knew that just by looking at people well probably he gathered this information because he actually talked to them he probably had conversations with the people he was teaching to and ask, oh, where are you from? I mean, that's a common thing we ask people when we first meet them. Where are you from? And so Jesus is processing 
all the people that he's been engaging and figuring out, oh, you're from that town, oh, you're from this town. And he's saying, these people came from a long distance. So that's a lesson to us to, to, to remind us when we engage with people that we are to listen to them as opposed to talking to them. And when we are engaging with them, it's not that we are truly just listening to them. We are actually hearing what they're saying and absorbing that and making notes. To know them appropriately is critical to hear them. Because sometimes we project into them things that would be totally terrible if we did that for them. And there's a book that's called Helping When Helping Hurts. There are times when we try to be charitable and, and, and try to help others in their needs. We do things for them that really would be uh, harmful in the long run. And there are stories like if you go into the tropical jungles, the, the uh, missionaries will meet um, uh, tribes people or aborigines, and, and they give them antibiotics, right? Modern medicine. They give them antibiotics to solve their problem. But after the supplies of antibiotics runs out, it doesn't really any good for that particular village. So there isn't a long-standing solution. It's a short-term one. But sometimes when we, we introduce into a culture some, some, some sort of help, it's not sustainable. Or, or I, I, there's a story of one culture that is in a dirt-poor area. There's a lot of dirt around the homes, and, and uh, these missionaries thought it would be wise to put carpet in their, in their dwellings. But carpet and dirt don't mix very well. And so shortly after the first rainy season, that carpet was destroyed. Or they would give pieces of equipment, but there was no replacement parts. They're easily gotten. And so a lot of times we think initially that our helping could, would be meaningful because in our context, in our situations here, they are helpful. But in another place in the world, another culture, that may not actually be the solution that would be helpful. And it is best before acting to, to truly sit down and listen to them and to hear what's actually what their true needs are and in a way encourage through their, their um, conversations with you to come up with a solution that fits them more than fits what you think should fit. And sometimes all we have to do to be listening to them is just to be a good listener, right? Sometimes we, they're not asking for a solution. They're just looking for someone to listen to them. And this happened to me countless of times. Uh, I, I play basketball with a bunch of guys on Friday, and, and I try to get to know them. And I think after we played uh, one evening, one guy I've been trying to, to befriend, I, and I heard some things are going on in, in his life. I just asked him, oh, so how, how's your, your, your mother doing? Because she's aging and, and there's, he's, uh, he's wondering if he needs to get them into uh, uh, assisted living. And, and, you know, a lot of us in that situation of taking care of elderly parents, and that can be very stressful. So I just asked a very simple question, is how, you, how, you, how you, is your mother doing? And for the next hour... Uh, he began to tell me everything about his mother and, and, and the situation going on with his parents. 
and, and, and I know it, it, it took a lot of my time because this was probably like 10.30 in the evening and I didn't finish until maybe 11.30 in the evening and I'm trying to get home. But I knew it was meaningful for, for this friend to, to be just someone to listen to him, to allow him to tell me his burden. And, and that's often just something what people need is just to be a good listener. So like Jesus, so in the story of the four, feeding of the 4,000, the first thing he does is notice people, and then he listens. The third thing I see from here is, again, from verse 3, where it says, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. Jesus says that. If I send them uh, home hungry, they will collapse on the way. So what Jesus is doing here is essentially projecting. So he is Another way to say it is he's empathizing. He's putting himself in the place of the people. Because if you know the story, the disciples want to send them away to go get their own food. And Jesus is projecting here. He said, well, if we send them away, they're hungry. they got a long way to go back home to find food. And, and, and on the way, they could collapse. So he is putting himself in the shoes of these people that have come a long distance to hear him speak and imagining what they would be feeling. And that's called empathy. My wife, uh, a few years back, Terry went on a medical missions trip, and she encountered uh, this girl. I do believe I have a picture of that. Yeah. And this, they went to Cambodia, and they were doing eye vision testing. They were doing some dental procedures, some medical procedures. But the, uh, the autometry services, they were primarily trying to fit people with glasses. <clears throat> and then there's this girl that was brought by her mother, and she had a growth in her left eye, eyelid. So you can see it's kind of swollen, and if, and if it was larger, you could see there was actually a little bit of a, um, I, well, we would call it a tumor, uh, a peduncular kind of lesion that was coming out of the eyelid. And it was affecting her vision. And it wasn't something that they would have considered doing. It was mainly just vision screening, not eye surgery. But Terry felt compassion for this girl and for the mother. Because you imagine if your child was going through life with that defect. And, you know, their culture is no different than our culture. But it can become a social stigma, especially for a young girl. It affects her attractiveness. And in the self-esteem for this girl to walk around with this growth on her left eye could be something that would uh, affect her social uh, circles. And so Terry, having compassion, said, let's remove that tumor for her. And even all her peers around her said, there's no way. We're not set up to, to do surgery here. And Terry, uh, having ex- some experience at doing this, assessed the situation, and actually, because there was a dental team, the dental team obviously has uh, surgical equipment that's being sterilized and and the scalpels, and she said, let's go ahead and snip it out. And uh, there they are treating her, and that's actually the after effect, uh, after picture, and if you actually look at the two pictures, it's kind of hard to tell, but if you look closely, her eye looks a lot better. And that was just, again, 
Terry projecting into to this girl's life, to the mom's situation of loving her daughter and caring for her and worrying about her social status with this defect, this blemish on her eyelid. And just with a simple snip, Terry took care of that. And that starts with first noticing these things, hearing the mother's concern, and then projecting into that person's life that this really does make a difference if we do something. So having projected in someone and putting uh, ourselves in their place, having empathy, we can't just stop there. The next step is to actually respond, to act. And that's what Jesus does in the scriptures. He says in verses 4 to 8, his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied, and afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So in this story, Jesus hands-on dealt with an issue here. He didn't skirt it. He didn't avoid it. He actually did something that was very practical, something that was tangible and meaningful to the people there. And Jesus could have, he could have done this miracle with all by himself, right? He could have just whipped up a, a huge banquet feast just like he did with the wine at the, at the wedding. Uh, but he in, insisted to use the disciples there. And that's God's plan, that God could do all kinds of amazing things, but he chooses in his plan to use other human beings, imperfect people, frail people, selfish people, but he uses us to help others. And here, Jesus does the miracle, which is not insignificant, but he chooses also to ask his, his disciples to participate. And also, he asked the disciples, what do you have? So, in some ways, the disciples had to come up with the seven loaves and the few fish, and that's representative of what they had. However meager or little that may have been, that was sufficient enough for Jesus to feed the 4,000 to do his work. And that's encouragement for us to, to be reminded that, that Jesus can do amazing things with what we have and what we bring to him. But most importantly, to be reminded that Jesus needs to, he will and want to use us in serving and, and, and helping others in a tangible way. But if you look at uh, some of the earlier verses in, in that that, that uh, passage I just read from like verse 4, the disciples in Mark 8, 4 said, had kind of resisted Jesus' request to feed the 4,000. And there's actually, when they say this, only 4,000 4, refers to the men. 
So there's actually women and children. So there's more than 4,000 people here. And, and the disciples, understandably, I mean, if, if a lot of us would, would uh, have no problem identifying with the resistance that the, that the disciples were having, because they were out here ministering for three days. They're probably tired. Uh, they, they're hungry themselves. And they're ready to sit down and have their meal of seven loaves and a few fishes, which would be great for a family of 12, right? But Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to share that with everybody else. Now, I don't know if you've hungry, if you've been hungry and, and someone tells you, can I have some of what you're eating? It's not a, a great feeling. A lot of times we'll say, us more bold or selfish would say, no way. <laughs> but Jesus is telling his, his disciples, no, that, that's plenty. We're going we're gonna to share this. And then there's another thing that I want you to, to, to realize here. That, you, that the, the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 is a second feeding here. Right? In the Gospels, this is an important story of the feeding of the masses. But in, it's repeated in all the, the Gospels. It has to be some significance why. But in each case, too, there's two feedings. Prior to this, two chapters before, in Mark 6, there is the feeding of the 5,000. And this, if you look on the surface, they're pretty similar. And, but here, in the second feeding, you would think that the disciples have already seen this happen prior. And they say, oh, yeah, Jesus did a miracle last time. He could do one this time. But they have very short memory. <laughs> And they, they resist again. And, and this is something that, that, that's mind-boggling, that you would think that if you saw a miracle, you would say, oh, you could do it again. But I want also to note that the difference between the first feeding and the second feeding is location. And another thing that would cause the disciples to have resistance in feeding the people in the second one is based on race that they didn't want to feed the crowd because of a race issue. The first feeding was done with the Jewish people. It was in a Jewish area. And so the the people that came to hear uh, Jesus speak were primarily Jewish people. The second one, Jesus purposely moved over into an area that's Gentile area. And if you know in biblical times, for a good Jew to be hanging around Gentiles was a no-no. They literally considered them unclean, even to the point of calling them dogs. And here, Jesus is telling his disciples, the, the meager amount of food that they have, you are now going to share it with those people. And then the disciples were saying, I'm going to share my meal with dogs? That was totally disgusting to the disciples. But they were among Gentiles, and it was a message from Jesus is there is no barriers. There is no exclusion. We will help anyone in need. And so that's, that's um, what Jesus was not going to have any of that. And he told them, you feed them. And he tells them, how many loaves do you have? So that's my question. Are there times when you have kind of a anxiety, a fear, 
a hesitancy to help somebody because they are different from you, that they may, you have uh, thoughts or perceptions that they could harm you, or they're not even worthy of being helped, that you judge them, is that by their stupid or unwise choices that they're in a situation that they're at in, and that causes you to not want to help them? Well, so how do we overcome these, these fears and these barriers? Well, from the scripture, I see from verse 8 that there are going to be challenges. There are going to be needs that are very overwhelming. But the most important thing is that we have to depend on Jesus in the process of acting and helping others. In our culture, in our society, we often try to do things on our own, right? We use our resources, our skills and abilities, and we think we can help. But if you, I'm just telling you, if you're going to do this in the long run, you're going to burn out. You're going to get frustrated, even bitter. So when we try to help others in the name of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to depend on, on Jesus. And, and we see this in the story. Disciples are there, and there's a re- but also Jesus is there. Jesus is the one who's doing the miracle. The disciples are there to help him. But we can't forget that the presence of Jesus in this feeding is significant. And the same thing in the small things or the big things that we help others in our own lives, in our own circles, in our own neighborhoods, that we have to be uh, mindful that we can't do it if we try to do it alone. We have to do it with dependence on, on Jesus. And that's a good thing, right? That should be encouraging. Because I will tell you, when you stand and, and, and listen to someone for an hour as they're pouring their hearts out about their parents, or if you're visiting a sickly woman at a hospital or at their home. Or if you see a homeless person. Or you go to the slums of the Philippines or in India and you see the, the poverty. It's going to break your heart. And there are times where you're going to say, I've had enough. And I've seen tragic stories of missionaries getting burnt out in the field by the things that they encounter. But we have to remember that we can't do it alone. And we have to depend on Jesus. And that's a comforting thing to know. That Jesus says he will be with us when we are helping others in need. So the first thing to be reminded when we try to help others, we have to be dependent on God. And the second thing, a second practical tip, is that we have to have a plan. A plan of action when we go into situations, to be proactive versus reactive. My, my home group uh, went through a book by Tim Keller. It's called Generous Justice, and it, it deals with how, as Christians, it's synonymous to being those who champion social justice causes. They're not separate. There are um, some in our, in our uh, midst that believe that you can separate social justice from Christendom, but they're actually one and the same. And salvation is the other issue, which is just as important, the salvation of others. But social justice situations often, especially like when we encounter the homeless, freaks a lot of people out. 
and, and just being transparent and honest as we were sharing in our home group, that was a common feeling, is that I don't know what to do. And what we came up with was that if a lot of times the things we fear, a lot of things that we're afraid of, uh, things where we are surprised, is because we're not prepared. We just don't have a plan of action. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, if, I'll take a sports analogy, right? That's, that's the reason why you practice and you have scrimmages. The reason is you kind of uh, role play what kind of situations that come up on the playing field. I mean, you do that in basketball, right? You, you, you play and play, and, but there's nothing uh, the same, obviously, at action in a game situation because the speed and the e- effort rises. But practices help, and that's why you do practice. That then when you're actually encountered with the, with the situation, then you know what to do. So in our home group, we said, okay, a lot of times we are not prepared when we have these encounters, but that isn't a good enough excuse to avoid it. So we came up with a plan where we would prepare bags of love. So they were just like lunch bags with uh, water and fruit juices and uh, trail mix and fruit bars. So it's something tangible. When we're encountered with someone that, that is in need on the street, we have them in our cars or our backpacks and we could hand it to them. So that is actually better than turning our eyes away from, walking away from, not even engaging. So using discernment, obviously, but it is a way, a tangible way of being prepared. Then the other issue that, we, that help, helped us is that we can then um, have a few bucks, a few dollars in our pocket. Because a lot of times when, with good discernment, sometimes it's okay to give money to, to someone who, who's in need. But a lot of times we're a little reticent, and sometimes it is a wiser thing not to open your wallet in front of people or your purse because you could be vulnerable that way. But to be better prepared... It's just have a few dollars when you know you're going to go to the McDonald's or the Burger King and, and there's going to be street people there waiting for you. That you have a few dollars so that when they do approach you and with the prompting of, of the Holy Spirit and, and discernment, you can give them a few dollars without reaching into your wallet or reaching into your purse. And that's kind of a safe way of dealing with it. And I think that's a better response than just avoiding it or saying, oh, no, or not even saying anything. So I think there's some dignity to the person that is in need that we should respect, but also in a genuine way be able to respond in a way that can be tangible more than empty. So that's my question for us. Who has God called you to love? What needs do you recognize and how will you respond? This morning, we, earlier we heard that the Tomokawas went out to the Philippines. And I like to call them up now to, to uh, ask them a few questions and just to give you a picture of their experience. And maybe it may be encouraging to you in, in how we can all be better followers of Jesus Christ and meeting real needs out there, especially people that, that we encounter in the world. Colin, Priscilla, thank you for um, helping me out here.
<laughs> and I, I think you brought some pictures. They'll be flashing in the back that uh, just gives you uh, an idea of what they were encountering out there. Just to give you a little structure of it, I, I like to ask questions generally with anyone I meet, especially those who, who, who follow Jesus Christ, kind of these before, during, and after kind of questions. How were you before, how you were after, and how were you in the midst of something? So the first question, what were some of your concerns, some of your hopes before going on this trip? So just for background, I think Colin mentioned that in 2003, we as a couple before kids went and volunteered in Smoky Mountain Garbage Village, which you're seeing pictures of here. And it was a heartbreaking experience. It was, um, as someone who actually feels like I have a mind for social justice, I spent my four, first four years out of college working for a not-for-profit in Boston. I feel like I'm close to these issues, but I had never seen poverty on a global scale, and we'll just hold here like this, and it broke my heart, and it left me without words. And there were many years after this trip um, until I could sing the Matt Bradman song, Blessed Be Your Name, on the road Mark was suffering, when there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name, without just breaking into tears. So when um, our home group and, and with the pastoral leadership team decided to study uh, Living Simply, Giving Generously a few years ago, you might remember that, we went on this journey together as a home group to live on $2 a day. And one of the things that we talked about was what would it be like for us as a home group to sort of live out these principles together? Could we volunteer together? Could we um, go on a missions trip together with our families? And I think that began, was a seed that started the thinking. And then as Colin mentioned, when um, the pastors came and said, and the Kingdom Fund folks said, hey, we actually want to help people who want to go on the missions field internationally or locally for the first time to do that with their kids. We thought, well, that's another sign. And Colin's the battle coming up. So there were a lot of rational reasons, plus the fact that we had a lot of freaking flyer miles that could get us there and back um, that lined up to rationally why we should go. But I, although I was there mentally, I was not there emotionally. And I shared some of this with some folks. I didn't really want to go in my heart because I don't want to be brokenhearted. It is not easy to have... Um, the reality of life placed before you outside of our bubble that we live in in the Bay Area and have to wrestle with that and have to ask yourself the question, why and where is God in this and what is my role in this and how can it be that I was born into a family where I have everything I could want from clothes to wear or food to eat or um, healthy kids and how is it that other people are born into such a different environment? How, how can that be? So I didn't want to go. Um, and that was my concern, is I just didn't want to deal with all of that. Life was much cleaner and easier not to actually go there. So that's for me. And then for my family, I think for the kids, they had their own fears and my fears for them. When we went to Smoky Mountain the first time, we didn't have kids. So it was a very like easy thing to do, relatively speaking. When you have children and you're bringing them into that environment, I had emails from certain mothers or mother-in-laws that begged me not to take the kids. What are you thinking? Um, I had other people were saying, like, are you sure you want to do this? Is this a good thing? Is this wise? Um, and I'm like, yeah, we'll be fine. But I think as the days got closer, I felt more of a burden for my kids um, in, te in terms of, like, I'm exposing tem them to disease. The living conditions will be difficult. There's a smell that the kids were really concerned about. Um, and just, you know, seeing poverty firsthand. Um, what's interesting about those fears is they're very real fears, and... Um, the kids expressed them, and Pastor Cheryl prayed with them about them. 
is I, we got a Facebook message from one of our um, godparents of Kainoa, who's a missions pastor for Grace Chapel, which is in um, Boston. And she said, don't do um, Facebook voyeurism as a missionary. And she just said this in general. She wasn't meaning it to us. And I really took that to heart, this idea of like, wow, when we go into a situation, don't be posting pictures of us helping the poor or how needy they are. And I, I was wrestling with that. And what was interesting and what transpired in our trip is a lot of the fears that I had um, when seen through a children's lens were very different. So I'm going to just share with you how God answered those fears. So one of the fears was um, living conditions, like living next to you know, the smell and that um, water that you saw, it really doesn't smell very good. Um, and really being in the heart of it. The kids loved it because we were in one room. Um, it didn't even have a bathroom, it was just one room. And we were all like lying on the floor together on the hard floor, which they like. They don't like being in beds. And we could roll around and like touch each other. So they thought it was really awesome. So from, from their eyes, they're like, what are you talking about? This is really cool. If I could sleep in your bed every night, I would love it. Um, second, from a disease standpoint, um, we prayed for protection over the kids, and the kids, I'm happy to say, came through it pretty healthy. We didn't pray for the adults, so that's a different story, <laughs> um, which we'll get into later, but that was an answer to prayer. Uh, and then from um, a smell standpoint, we had the privilege of actually going through New Zealand earlier before we went to Smoky Mountain because Colin had some work there. And we went to a place called Rotorua, which is one of the three germal, geothermal active places on Earth besides Hawaii and um, Yellowstone National Park. And it smells really bad there. It smells like rotten eggs. So even driving through there, the kids were like, we don't want to stay there. This is terrible. So when they got to Smoky Mountain, they're like, this doesn't stink. It stinks more in Rotorua, New Zealand. <laughs> Um, and then on the last thing, on the um, idea of poverty, when you look at people uh, who are dressed like you are and who maybe like play like you are, you don't actually see a lot of the differences. You're just on the same level. So we have some pictures, I don't know if we went through them, of the kids playing with other kids. And they would play all night. Like in the garbage village, people don't have a sense of time. So at 11 p.m., they would be in our room playing and just having a good time. And the kids didn't always realize how old kids were, but they just realized that, hey, people here have a good time, and they really enjoy each other. Relationships are important. Um, and so Micah had two observations. One was he said, I'm taller than the adults. <laughs> so that was an interesting thing. Like, he realized there was some dissonance there. But the other thing he said was, people here who have not as much as I do, who live in one room, who maybe don't have shoes, they're so happy. They're happier than people I know. And he kept just saying that. Like, the difference is people there are way more happier than people here. So just looking at all the fears that I had through a kid's lens, I think, gives us an opening into God's heart and how God sees people and really the realities of what it is like to be poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So the second question I asked when, when they actually arrived in the Philippines were the things that they saw or, or, or um, experienced that just broke your heart. One of the first pictures saw that green mountain, sorry if I have to explain it, that was Smoky Mountain 1, and in 1995, that dump was closed. It's a 10-story mountain of garbage that folks scavenged off of. Uh, so that is actually closed, but in the meantime, it's growing things. Um, they call it Smoky Mountain 2 because when garbage decomposes, it release, releases methane gas that would sort of ignite, and the mountain would smoke in its heyday. Um, there's no more smoke coming out of the mountain, but there's still squatters living on there. And uh, 
we took a day to hike Smoky Mountain. Uh, some of the things I appreciated about it was <clears throat> Father Ben has worked with a lot of different populations uh, within uh, his little parish. Uh, one of them is uh, he works with uh, children, and some of the children we met in 2003 were middle schoolers, high schoolers who joined this dance troupe. And it was a fairly high commitment dance kind of opportunity for them. And it taught them life skills, it taught them discipline. Uh, out of that, you know, they were required to go to school. Uh, and it was that particular population where we built particular relationships over the past 13 years. Uh, at 13 years later, some of those middle schoolers and high schoolers are now young adults, uh, moms, dads. And, you know, probably 25% of them are now college grads. Uh, through Father Ben's sort of work, he sort of was able to kind of cast a little bit of vision for their development. And I just sort of feel like one of the things that is amazing to me is sort of, uh, sort of I feel like the church making a difference in taking sort of like scavenger to college grad. And I think the transformation that he can offer people uh, is sort of a testimony to God uh, as we think about sort of acts of justice, evangelism, discipleship. Uh, it was a very encouraging thing for me. Uh, secondly, we didn't have a tremendous plan of how to be generous. We had a little bit of a plan, talking to our home group, talking to family members and close friends. Kind of shared a little bit what we're doing, asked people to pray, and then we also like, well, if we plan on taking in some cash, just what we'll walk it in, and as the Lord leads, perhaps there's a way to deal with that. So we walked in with a few thousand dollars, asking for God to, well, there's plenty of need, but is there a specific place? And talking about education with some of these kids, uh, talking with administrators of the dance group, uh, you know, there's a one woman in particular who is coming back to the dance group and was in need of tuition money. And I thought, well, maybe this is it. So our, kind of what we brought, you know, in some ways offers three of the dancers uh, college tuition for the next four years. So I felt like sort of the gift of education is a tremendous gift. And seeing the impact of education, we all know that in this room, but the, the impact for the community there has definitely changed their socioeconomic realities. And again, seeing the poverty where we saw them 13 years ago and see them as young adults today, uh, and it, that was an encouraging thing to my heart to see that the church is making a difference. So, so some personal stories just to bring that to life for you is uh, some of people in this congregation have been involved in the, on the Smoky Mountain journey with us as partners. Some of you have housed some people. Some of you have brought meals when they've come to visit. Some of you have donated when they've come and danced here. Um, and others of you, like uh, Carol Koyama, have provided needed medical care. So about eight years ago, maybe, we had um, Father Ben bring the troop over, and they were staying at our house. We noticed that the youngest boy, Alan, um, seemed like sad all the time and like we asked what was going on and he had an abscess tooth and so we made some calls and um, we ended up visiting Carol and she removed the abscess tooth and I remember that being a really scary experience for the boy and um, you know he'd never had actually had medical care before and she's like I don't know where to begin there's five teeth I could take out I'm like just just do the one um, fast forward to uh, we took some of the folks that we knew from the garbage village and their kids um, and their families out to um, a, for a day of fun at a pool. And during that time, there was this a young man who was sitting next to me the whole time being very attentive and uh, asking me, do I have enough to eat? And would I like to sing karaoke now? And um, you know, how am I feeling? Is it too hot for me? And I was like, 
oh, he's being so attentive this whole time. So it was like hours that we spent together just sitting, not saying a lot because we don't speak, I don't speak Tagalog, he doesn't speak English as well. And then when it was actually the close of the day, um, he said, do you remember when I visited? I was like, yeah, I remember when you visit, but lots of people visit and I can't remember who he was. And he said, I'm Alan. Um, and then he grabbed my hand and he held it and he held it really tight and he said, do you remember holding my hand? And I said, oh my gosh, you're the one. I've been wondering which of these boys that have become men were the one that I took to the dentist and it was him. And in that moment when he held my hand, he said, I was wondering if you remembered. I've never forgotten. So this is like years later. So that was very moving to me. Um, another story that um, we'll share, um, a picture will come up next is a boy named Dandel who was actually born and raised on, as a scavenger on the mountain. And he was actually, um, selected or tried out for this um, dance company and changed his life that way through the generosity of churches like ours and others to get his education and um, he actually is now a teacher and here he is right here so he used to scavenge up there that's when we visited him back in 2003 and here's Dendell on the right and he's a teacher um, teaching other kids from the scavenger community and what he says to them is I was a scavenger like you Look what you can become. If you put your mind to it and you work hard, you can change your circumstances. And that was a really powerful story. The next picture we'll put up is of Jessa. And um, I wasn't able to get pictures of before and after, but this is when we visited her uh, about you know 13 years ago. And uh, she is a, a child scavenger as well who got involved in like school and stayed in school. She graduated and got her degree. And now um, she's working at Chow King. So just to give you some context for this, it's a fast food chain like McDonald's. If you get a college degree, you get a job like working at Chow King. That's the way it is in the Philippines. Like it's a, there's not a lot of jobs there, so you have to be very qualified. And it kind of made my heart sink because I felt all this work and all the college degree and you're working at Chow King. But for her and her family, so much better than working as a scavenger, right? So it's... Um, she has two kids now, and she's raising them. She commutes two hours a day to her job, um, two hours there and two hours back. So when she came to visit us, it was 10.30 at night, and she brought her kids with us. So it was a, a dose of reality, but I'm very happy for her. Her life is better. Um, and then the last picture is actually where my heart breaks. This is Bryn, and he's one of the boys. We spent, I'm going to get emotional, we spent a lot of time with him when we were in Smoky Mountain. And I remember Father Ben saying to me, Priscilla, because I would dance with them. They really like dancing and singing, and so I like singing and dancing, so we would do these dance routines and like hang out all day, and they were called the out-of-school youth because they didn't make it in school, so they're getting trained outside by Father Ben to actually get their GED. And I was like, oh, so much fun. I had such a good day with them today. And he goes, ah, yes, Priscilla, but they're going nowhere. And I was like, what do you mean, Father Ben? What are you talking about? And he said, you know, these other kids, they're going to be bound for college. They're, you know, they have a... Um, they're inmates, they're in this dance company, they actually have the grades, they're going to go and become better. But for kids like Bryn, they're just going to keep on scavenging. That's all there is for them in life. And I remember walking away and being very angry at this man, Father Ben, who had actually brought clean water and housing to thousands of people. Like, how can you say this about people who are your own? And when we visited, it's true, he's still scavenging. And um, one of the ladies that we were working with, she married him and she just had a baby. And I held the baby, and just a very different future for them. And so my heart was broken in a way I didn't want it to be. 
but that's Bryn, and he's very happy. I mean, they're very happy, and they're, their baby is darling, and my kids played with them and held them, um, but not everybody makes it out, and not everybody has a future, and it really illustrated to me how um, important it is for us, like just a little bit of money helps. Like it's amazing. Colin mentioned we went in with a couple thousand dollars from friends and family. Some of you have donated to that, um, and it can actually change somebody's life. It could get them a job at Chow King, which I know doesn't sound like something really special, but when the alternative is something really miserable um, and has a lot of dangers, um, it makes a difference. So um, that's where I felt like we saw God working, and that's also where I feel like um, God's still working. So my, my final question was to, to the Tomakawas, coming back, how do you feel God leading you in responding to, to your experience? When we take students overseas, put them in challenging situations, coming home, uh, we hope that it sort of reformats people's vision, even domestically you know, in, in the political climate of our country or the race climate, socioeconomic realities. Uh, how do we rethink our current situation? And those are things we challenge university students to think about. And I feel like I'm sort of challenged by those things myself. Uh, personally, I've been trying to think about sort of who, a little bit identity questions, like who am I to the, this crowd of garbage village kids? What's our relationship like? We brought in a some money, some resources. We, you know, have a 13-year-long, mostly Facebook relationship, friendship with a lot of the kids. Uh, what does that mean today? And I think that's still a, a, a great question to wrestle with. Um, the gift of education, I feel like, gosh, I think we could still sort of figure out how to help that happen. And, you know, uh, there's three, there's three uh, people I know who would go to college if they had the means right now. Uh, Bryn's wife would go back to college if she had the means too. And on one hand, I was talking to one of them like, how much is your first semester of, of 170 public education? $170 for your first, for your first semester. Like, so like $1,400 later, you could provide college tuition for four years. Like, ah, I think we could do that. I don't want to make any promises in their face at the moment, but this all's going to my mind. I was like, as a church, I wonder what we could do, you know, or as we think about just the, the networks I have and how do we think about perhaps giving the gift of education more. Uh, it's complicated giving money, but, you know, thinking through that a little bit is one of the things, a next step I've been inspired to think about. Uh, Pastor Andrew and I were chatting this past spring going into the summer about this trip and I think there's a lot of opportunities for, for us to get involved. And I was like, Pastor Andrew, come with me, you know, or church, let's go, let's go check it out. Uh, is there a small group of folks smarter, more capable than I who can help solve problems in their, in their context? Well, we, don't, we can't solve global poverty. Uh, you know, what are our loaves and fish that we could bring that I think God can use and multiply? And I do think the church, we, the church, have an opportunity. We, we can have an opportunity. We do have an opportunity to, to offer those things. And I'm motivated to continue to push that. You know, I, I, I have a great relationship with a number of folks, and I think there's still more opportunities ahead for us. For us, for me, for us, and 
maybe more widely as CLC. All right, thank you for sharing your story. Colin mentioned uh, just an opportunity, and I'll continue to dialogue with him, I'm sure with the pastoral staff we will, to just see if there are some tangible things that we can, can uh, help the people out at Spoking Mountain. Now, I began a message with a little bit of teaser about if we don't help others, we miss out on a benefit, a blessing that is meant for us when we help others. And, and those of you who have helped others, you, you probably experienced this. But I think some of us may not have. And, and the, the, the blessing that we get, the gift that we get when we help others, is that we will actually be with Jesus. That the center of God's will will be with us when we help others. Because just like in the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples were with Jesus when they were helping others in a meaningful way. And that is the secret, the gift. Because one day, there will be a day of judgment. Jesus tells the parable of the goats, the sheep and the goats, in Matthew 25. It's a story that many of us are familiar with. If you're not, it's about that day when we come before Jesus the scripture tells us that he will separate the people. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And according to the scripture, the goats are the ones who are going to be thrown away. And the sheep are those who will be living for an eternity with him. And the distinction between the sheep and the goats is this. That Jesus says, because in the parable in verse 40, the king, meaning Jesus, will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So when we reach out, when we notice someone, when we listen to them, when we project and we actually act and do something in a tangible way to help someone, we're doing it for Jesus. And on that day of judgment, when you have done that, then you can become a sheep. And that is good news. And my encouragement to you is that if you haven't made that decision to cross that line to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do so because it is the most uh, important decision in your life, but one that brings tremendous amount of blessing.